You want to be in America when you're here? Let's speak American. Oh, Sarah Palin, I've missed you so much. So much. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, on Radio Sputnik, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, rested up after a, uh, a lovely uh, holiday weekend. Glad you could join us today for another thrilling adventure that we call the broadcast, and it is a thrilling adventure today. We have uh, probably changed this show five times within the past hour uh, as new information uh, is is coming in, is breaking, coming out of the uh, of the holiday weekend. Uh, so we'll see. We'll probably change it five more times here before we're done. Uh, before we get started, however, my thanks to Nicole Sandler from RadioOrNot.com. For filling in for us at the uh, at the end of last week, giving us a day or two off, a much needed day or two off. Thank you very, very much, Nicole. Great job, and by the way, great interview. She did a bunch of great interviews, um, but one of them in particular w- with our friend Howie Klein from Down with Tyranny on on what's wrong with the DNC, the Democrats, and especially the D Triple C, the establishment Democrats, I should say, the D Triple C is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And, uh, well, Howie just, went, if, if you want to know about progressive politics and about democratic politics and how those two are not necessarily the same, the guy you want is Howie Klein. We've had him on the show many times. It was great for uh, Nicole to uh, talk to him about how the DCCC continues, just continues to support right-wing corporatist Democrats over real progressives. And there's been, you know, there's all kinds of talk about the, you know, the, the pretend Tea Party, the fake Tea Party, which is really just, you know, the Republican Party in disguise after they were embarrassed by George W. Bush. I called them for years the sore loser party. Because that's really uh, what the Tea Party is. Uh, but, you know, where the, the Tea Party is different from the establishment Republicans and how the Tea Party are throwing out establishment Republicans and and standing up against them. A lot of talk about that, but not nearly as much talk about a similar dynamic on the Democratic side when it comes to to the difference between establishment Democrats and real progressives. A great conversation uh, on on the uh, previous broadcast uh, guest hosted by Nicole Sandler with Howie Klein on that issue. You might want to Go back to the archives, check them out at, uh, at bradblog.com or over at iTunes or kpfk.org, 
whatever uh, whatever works best for you. Uh, so thanks again, Nicole. All right, we got a lot to get to, as I said today, particularly down in Kentucky. We're going to get there in a minute because that thing has been changing. And Desi Doyen, Desi Doyen is with us as always. Hey, Desi. Hey. Uh, Desi, let me know if anything changes I know. at a moment's notice <laughs> with what's going on in, it's been crazy. in Kentucky. If Kim Davis is back in jail, let us know. All right. Uh, and by the time you hear this, she may be back in jail. But we'll, uh, not Desi, but Kim Davis. So we'll, Thank you. You're welcome. We will, uh, we will talk about all of that uh, momentarily. Uh, but also, uh, remember that live on-air shooting in Roanoke, Virginia? Just It was just over a week ago. It feels like forever ago at this point. No. I, I mean, we have so many of these in this country, shamefully in this country, uh, that, you know, the next day we just move on, we forget about it. And so that shooting... Uh, where three people were shot, two were killed in uh, in Roanoke on air live in Virginia. That seems like you know forever ago, and it's predicted the media have already moved on. It's forgotten, but we have not forgotten here at the broadcast. Uh, we've had many more mass shootings since then that didn't even make the news. I guess because they didn't happen on camera, uh, like one at the at Sacramento City College. You probably haven't even heard about it out here in California. Three shot. One was killed. The shooter, as far as I know, is still at large. Uh, one of those uh, three people who were shot was was killed, was was shot fatally. It was this was in a parking lot near the baseball fields at Sacramento City College in California late last week. The uh, community college in uh, California's capital was under protective lockdown as the uh, police began their search uh, late last week. Um, so but, you know, we didn't even hear about it. We didn't even talk about it. It didn't even make its way onto the news. Just another day in uh, these United States of America. Just another shooting. And uh, as a matter of fact, as we were going to air, there was yet another shooting that I hadn't even heard about. We'll talk about in a little bit before we get to our guest um, concerning an aide to uh, to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is now calling for a national gun policy after one of his own top attorneys was shot and critically wounded on uh, on Monday morning. I hadn't even heard about that one myself. So we'll talk a little bit more about that and we'll we'll get some of Andrew Cuomo's comments um, before we have our guest. Because at the time I had brought up this guy's name at the time of the Roanoke shooting, uh, New York Times Nicholas Kristof cited the work of David Hemingway, the author of the book Private Guns and Public Health. By way of noting that there is a different way that we could be dealing with the shameful gun violence epidemic in this country. So we will speak with uh, David Hemingway about his book shortly. He will be joining us as our guest. I'm looking forward to speaking with him. Meantime, down in uh, in Rowan County, Kentucky, uh, the uh, county clerk down there, Kim Davis, uh, who had refused to allow anyone uh, to in her office to issue marriage licenses, whether to gay or straight people, uh, she was tossed in jail over the uh, over the holiday weekend. Before the holiday weekend, she remained in jail for the weekend uh, for refusing to comply with uh, with the court orders, court or federal court orders that went all the way up federal court, appellate court, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but she refused to uh, what she considers as violating her conscience. 
by stamping a marriage license that says uh, her name in Rowan County on it. So she was tossed into jail uh, for refusing to comply with the court orders. And, uh, and actually, there's something more specific. There's a more specific reason why she was tossed into jail. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment because a lot of people don't understand this about this case. It wasn't just because she refused to defy her own conscience. It wasn't just because she refused to you know, resign from her office uh, due to her own conscience. Okay, her conscience says that gay people shouldn't get married. Fine. Then quit. Because the law of the land and the Constitution of these United States finds that there's a fundamental right for uh, same-sex couples to get married if they wish to get married. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. If, if stamping, you don't have to carry the, you know, hold out this, uh, carry off the ceremony. Uh, as Joe Dunman, uh, the attorney for the couples who were suing, told us on this uh, on the broadcast last week, you know, she doesn't have to actually perform the ceremony. All she's got to do is stamp her name on the license. I don't even think she has to sign it. I think there's a stamp with her name. She doesn't even have to. As a matter of fact, she doesn't even have to do it. Someone else in her office can do it. One of her deputies can do it. And that's why Kim Davis was sent to jail, not because she wouldn't violate her own conscience, but because she wouldn't allow anyone else in the office to violate her conscience. That's what this is about. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But before we went to air today here on Tuesday, the judge, the federal judge down there in the Eastern District of Kentucky, uh, who had sent her, this is uh, Judge David L. Bunning, who had uh, sent her to jail for refusing to comply with these orders and for refusing to let anyone else in her office comply with these orders. Uh, he sent her to jail for contempt of court. And on Tuesday, Judge Bunning uh, announced that Davis shall now be released from the custody of the U.S. Marshal forthwith. Defendant Davis shall not interfere in any way, directly or indirectly, with the efforts of her deputy clerks to issue marriage licenses to all legally eligible couples, according to the judge's order today. If Defendant Davis should interfere in any way with their issuance, that will be considered a violation of this order and appropriate sanctions will be considered. She made a triumphant escape from uh, from jail today to a crowd that had been uh, had been uh, there was going to be a rally in front of this uh, jail today anyway before the crowd learned that she would be released by the judge. Here is Kim Davis. Uh, this is incredible. Actually being uh, introduced, uh, receiving a hero's welcome outside the county jail in Kentucky. Maybe you would like to personally express your thanks to the person who had the courage to cause a lot of people to start standing up. A person whose courage exceeds that of 99 and 9 tenths percent of the politicians of this country, and sadly, that exceeds a bunch of even the pastors of this country. But I believe that her act is going to wake up the politicians, the pastors, and the people. Would you please help me welcome to the stage, Kim Davis. So, the eye of the tiger. You can go ahead and take that down. The eye of the tiger, she was introduced. That was 
Uh, former Arkansas governor, now uh, two-time uh, uh, presidential candidate, Republican presidential candidate, Mike Huckabee, introducing Kim Davis as she came out from the from the jail uh, to to the theme from Rocky. Her arms were, he held her arms up in the air. Her lawyer held her other arm like she was a champion, heavyweight champion. The crowd went wild. It was unbelievable. This because a woman refused to follow a law, not only follow a constitutional right, but refused to let anyone in her office, anyone in her office, Follow that constitutional right. Defend that constitution as they uh, as they swear in their oaths of office. Here was Kim Davis. Here was her remarks uh, uh, to the uh, to her adoring fans outside the jail. I just want to give God the glory. He is, his people have rallied, and you are a strong people. We serve a living God who knows exactly where each and every one of us is at. Just keep on pressing. Don't let down. Because he is here. And he's worthy, he's worthy. I love you guys. Thank you so much. You are a strong people. That was Kim Davis making her remarks, uh, her triumphant remarks after uh, leaving jail today on on the judge's orders. Uh, I suspect she will be back in jail before very long. So enjoy your quote unquote freedom while you have it, Kim Davis. Uh, the, the reason is because she is going to defy the judge's orders again. She has said as much. Her attorney, ha- at least her attorney has said as much. Uh, and, of course, she's now being egged on by guys like Mike Huckabee and uh, Ted Cruz, who I believe was also on hand on Tuesday as she was uh, let out of jail. Huckabee appeared on uh, ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos on Sunday. And uh, Stephanopoulos asked her, hey, doesn't she have the duty to obey a legal order from the court? Huckabee said, well, you obey if it's right. Okay. So I guess you get to pick and choose which laws you think are right, which ones are not right. He said, you've got Democrats who ignored the law when it was the law to have traditional marriage. Gavin Newsom in San Francisco as mayor performed same-sex weddings even though it was illegal. Did he ever get put in jail? He most certainly did not. That was Mike Huckabee uh, talking about the former mayor, now lieutenant governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who, uh, by the way, deserves a Profile in Courage Award, which I don't think he has ever received, but for standing up years ago, back in 2004, and saying, hey, I read the Constitution, and I don't see any place in here that says that we can bar marriage between two consenting adults just because they happen to be of the same sex. And he allowed uh, marriages to proceed. He was a hero. He was vilified by many uh, way back then, but he was a hero. Well, he took that uh, comment up, Governor uh, uh, Gavin Newsom did, with uh, Mike Huckabee, who uh, Huckabee also went out and tweeted his uh, his remarks from uh, from this week. Huckabee said uh, on the Twitters to Gavin Newsom, "What law was what law on Kentucky books?" Uh, in con- concerning marriage, did Kim Davis break? You, on the other hand, broke California law. The California Family Code states that marriage is a union between a man and a woman, he said, quoting uh, San Francisco Chronicle from back in 2004. That was Huckabee to Gavin Newsom. Newsom replied, 
Governor, you are dead wrong on the Kim Davis issue. We issued marriage licenses because we believe the law at the time violated equal protection clause of the Constitution. He was absolutely right about that, as the Supreme Court ultimately determined, both the Supreme Court in California and the Supreme Court, uh, the, the United States Supreme Court. He said to uh, Governor uh, Huckabee on Twitter, uh, once the California Supreme Court, who interprets the Constitution, uh, determined it, once the court ordered me to stop, I did. Gavin Newsom said, I was never in contempt of court, unlike Kim Davis. Get your facts right, Governor Mike Huckabee. That was uh, that was Gavin Newsom on Twitter responding to Huckabee, who is absolutely dead wrong, who is down there in Kentucky trying to raise money for his presidential uh, uh, campaign by pretending that somehow it is perfectly right, perfectly legal to go out there, not only vi uh, violate the law, um, civil, disobe civil disobedience is one thing. And yes, she went to jail and she did served her time so far in jail. But she's not just defying the law herself. She's not just defying the Constitution herself. She is disallowing everyone else in her office from doing the same thing. That's why Kim Davis was in jail, not because of her conscience, but because she wouldn't allow anyone else in the office, in her office, to exercise their own conscience. And when the judge, Judge Bunning, pulled forward those uh, deputies, brought them into court and asked them, hey, would you be willing to issue these licenses? Would you be willing to follow the law? They all said yes. Well, not all of them. Her son, who serves in the office where she worked under her mother, who was the clerk for 20-something uh, years. Uh, her son said, no, I won't do it. But the rest of them said, yes, they would. So it would not defy her conscience. She wouldn't be required to do this herself. Others in her office were more than willing to do it, but she would not allow them their rights, their ability, their conscience to follow the law, and the Constitution. That's why Kim Davis is in jail. So when you see her being made a hero because she wouldn't violate her own conscience, please take note. This has nothing to do with her conscience. This has nothing to do with her freedom. This has everything to do with her violating others' consciences, others' freedoms, and others' constitutional rights. Keep that in mind, please. Thank you, because it's not being covered uh, enough. All right, we got a lot to get to today, uh, including David Hemingway coming up. Um, as well, if I can get to it, uh, we've got more news now on the Iran deal. A settlement has been reached in Baltimore concerning Freddie Gray. All of that and hopefully more right here on your broadcast straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Jeannie got a gun Come undone Looking straight at the sun Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com 
On Tuesday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called for national gun control legislation to try to stem violence nationwide. One day after a top lawyer in his administration was shot and critically wounded early Monday morning, Carrie Gabay, 43-year-old lawyer, uh, was who was appointed first deputy counsel for Empire State Development in January, was critically wounded in Brooklyn, New York, by what uh, Governor Cuomo described as, quote, a seemingly random bullet that struck him in the head. Cuomo said on uh, CNN on Tuesday that Gabay remains in very, very critical condition. He said he had nothing good to report after speaking with Gabay's family. He was hit with a stray bullet after someone fired several rounds nearby as Gabay was enjoying pre-West Indian Day parade festivities with his family. Uh, he was taken to the hospital in critical condition. Cuomo uh, took to CNN to say that, uh, yeah, how long is this going to go on before we have some kind of national gun safety legislation? How many incidents do we have to have? How many weeks do we have to have with the same story over and over and over about the insanity that this country is allowing to continue with violence and loss of life of innocent people because we have people who have no business having guns having guns. And this nation has to have the political courage to step up and the elected officials have to have the political courage to step up and say uh, this weekly ongoing tragedy of loss of life of innocent victims, school children, young girls, young boys must stop. It must stop. But it won't. You know, uh, following the uh, the Roanoke shootings uh, just over a week ago, those horrific on-air shootings at WD, uh, WDBJ down there, uh, Nicholas Kristoff in the New York Times wrote a, a fantastic column. We quoted some of it on this show at the time, and I, I want to just uh, review a couple of the bullet points that he offered. Um guess that's a bad turn of phrase for this particular issue but uh the talking points let me uh, put it that way uh nicholas christoph wrote that more americans die in gun homicides and suicides every six months than have died in the last 25 years in every single terrorist attack and the wars in afghanistan and iraq combined Just incredible. More Americans have died from guns in the U.S. since 1968 than on battlefields of all of the wars in American history combined. American children are also 14 times, 14 times as likely to die from guns as children in other developed countries. This comes from uh, David Hemingway, a Harvard professor and author of the book. Christoph uh, just details uh, what he describes as the unrelenting toll of gun violence that claims one life every 16 minutes on average in the United States. And when we talked about this article and some of these remarkable statistics, uh, I, I thought right away, oh, you know what? I need to get David Hemingway on this show to explain this idea, to explain uh, private guns, public health. Why is uh, why or why should be gun gun violence should be a public health issue above and beyond anything else? Uh, on an average day in the United States, according to Hemingway's book, Private Guns, Public Health, guns are used to kill almost 80 people. 
80 people a day and to wound nearly 300 more. If any other consumer product had this sort of disastrous effect, the public outcry would be deafening, says Hemingway. Yet when it comes to guns, such facts are accepted as a natural consequence of supposedly high American rates of violence. Well, we're just violent in this country, so, you know, what are you going to do? Hemingway's book explodes that myth and others, revealing the advantages of treating gun violence as a consumer safety and public health problem. The book describes how a public health approach which emphasizes prevention over punishment and which has been so successful in reducing the rates of injuries and death from infectious disease, car accidents, tobacco consumption can also he says, be applied to gun violence. David Hemingway is professor of health policy at the Harvard School of Public Health, director of Harvard's Injury Control Research Center and Youth Violence Prevention Center. He's a former Pew Fellow in Injury Control, has been a Senior Soros Justice Fellow, and held a Robert Wood Johnson Investigator Award in health policy research. He is, of course, the author of Private Guns, Public Health, laying out the public health approach to gun violence and what he describes as a common sense plan for ending this shameful epidemic. Uh, David Hemingway, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Uh, really good to talk to you. Really good to have you here. And uh, thank you for your book. Um, before we get into the details to explain uh, how guns should be regarded as a public health matter. Uh, how have, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of these statistics first that uh, Christoph uh, described and uh, how, how those statistics have changed over time. Uh, how have guns changed over time from the old six-shooter revolver to today's semi-automatic assault rifles and you know, self-reloading Glocks like those that were used in that uh, on-air uh, Roanoke shooting. Has that changed uh, the, the epidemic of gun violence in this country along with the change of guns themselves? Um, to some extent, that's right. Uh, guns uh, have been made uh, more lethal, uh, more concealable. Uh, to some extent, a little safer, but uh, the problem is, what we'd really like to see is gun manufacturers do a whole lot more to help try to reduce uh, the carnage in the United States. But they would have to do that, as things are now, I suppose, voluntarily. Because uh, as uh, gun proponents seem to argue these days, and they didn't always make this argument, as I understand it, and perhaps you can uh, help me on that, but you know, as they argue, you know, any uh, restriction, limitation... Uh, requirement from a gun gun manufacturer would be seen as a, a violation of the uh, sacrosanct Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, well, th that's of course not true. Right now, the Second Amendment, as it was, uh, you know, first of all, the Second Amendment had, was, has, was never focused on individuals. But after the Heller decision, now it now it is. But what it does currently is it just uh, gives individuals the right to have a handgun in the house. Doesn't save anything about uh, not allowing improvements in guns or improvements or changes in the distribution of guns or even requirements in those respects. Well, uh, so you're saying, you, you see, and I, I realize you're not a, a constitutional expert, you're a health guy, but you're saying there would be no constitutional impediment, as you see it, uh, to including restrictions on uh, the way or, you know, consumer safety issues, the way we require seatbelts in cars. There's no constitutional problem with Congress or state, legislature, state legislatures requiring 
uh, gun manufacturers to include certain safety uh, uh, mechanisms? That's correct, as long as it doesn't impede the Second Amendment right to have a handgun in the home. So you, can, you could say yeah. that if, if there was a requirement that you had to do certain things that was going to raise the price of handguns to $5,000, which would impede people, poor people from having it, then you could make that argument. But if it's going to be minor changes to make the gun safer, then I, you can't make that argument and win. What are the arguments then in that case that are being made against those? And we'll talk about the type of... Uh, a lot of arguments yeah. are being made, and those are typically political arguments, but mm -hmm. uh, much, much can be done legally. Uh, without any problems. Uh, well, the argument, so you're saying that the argument going back to the founders and their beliefs about guns just has no place here, that if Congress or any other state legislator wants to uh, say that you must have uh, smart guns, and we could talk about what smart guns are, that there would be no problem with that, uh, even as far as the founders go, so long as people are allowed to have a handgun, period, end of story. Yes, and, and as long as, again, that you didn't make the requirements so onerous to make it incredibly difficult to, to, to acquire a gun. Well, what are then, what are the arguments against these, these common sense uh, uh, changes? You say they're political, but what I mean, are they? I'd rather talk about not, not the wrong arguments. I'd rather, much rather talk about the kinds of things that can be done to, to make us uh, a more safe country. Um, I teach in a public health school, and... People from around the world come, and they just cannot understand why the United States allows this to happen. Uh, that are, compared to all the other first-world countries or high-income countries are, that we are allowing so many uh, Americans uh, to be killed. I know. I can't understand it either, and that's why I'm trying to figure out sort of what the arguments are against them. But if you prefer to talk about what the arguments are in favor and what we ought to be doing... Uh, let's turn to that. Why is, uh, you know, how does thinking of this issue as a public health issue sort of change the conversation as you see it? Well, I, I think it's important to get a feeling for what the public health approach is. And it's an approach which, is, as you mentioned, has been so successful in so many areas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a sort of a one sentence argument, you know, notion, I would say that the public health approach tries to figure out ways to make it really easy for you to be healthy and difficult to be unhealthy. Um, and that, that's so for, for applied to obesity. We want to make it easy for people to exercise, easy for people to eat good food um, and so forth. And right now, too much, we make it difficult to do that and make it easy to eat bad food and, to, and make it hard to exercise. So in, the, in this field, uh, in the in the gun area, what we're really trying to do is sort of to step back and say, first, we have to admit that we have a problem. And the numbers are just overwhelming, as you mentioned, that we have this enormous problem compared to all the other first world countries. Then we have to think and step back and how can we prevent this problem? How can we reasonably make uh, an inroads and what can we do? Because I think uh, we're going to have lots and lots of guns in the United States. So the question is, how can we learn to live with, the, with our guns rather than currently we're dying? One of the analogies we make in public health, because I look a lot at all the successes, is in the motor vehicle area, mm -hmm. which is you know, 60 years ago we were told that 90% uh, of motor vehicle crashes were caused by driver error, people were tired, people were stupid, uh, and that over half of uh, the deaths caused by, uh, in motor vehicles were caused by drivers who were deliberately breaking the law 
drinking and driving, running red lights, speeding, and so forth. So the notion was always, let's do something about the driver, let's have driver's ed, let's uh, enforce the traffic laws. And public health physicians said, we could also look at a different question, not who's causing the problem, but what's causing the injury. And people were, it was clear people were being killed by steering wheels, which didn't collapse, and their faces were lacerated by glass, which was not safety glass, and they were being thrown from the cars, and they would leave the road for a second, and it would be lampposts and trees, which were planted along the sides of roads. And public health physicians were saying, couldn't we make the cars safer? Couldn't we make the roads safer? Couldn't we make the emergency medical system safer? And you fast forward 60 years, and nobody thinks drivers are better than they used to be. Right. Uh, it's really hard to change people, but it's really easy to change the system, the environment. Fatalities per mile driven in the United States have fallen over 85 uh, percent. The 20 people who were killed would have been killed when I was a youth. Now there's only three dying because the cars are so much better and the roads are so much better. And that's what we're doing in whole sorts of areas. Uh, in the area, for example, of uh, physician error, uh, physicians making errors. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of blaming the physician or the nurse, what we're trying to do is let's make it really hard for them to make errors. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, they make very, very few errors. And we've sort of solved the problem. Uh, that's one of the things that's really learned over and over in all the successes is that. Yes, we ought to look at the individuals, but we can do so much more, so much more cost-effectively if we also look at the system. Let's make a system where it's hard to make errors, hard to behave inappropriately, and then when still some people do, let's make it that nobody dies. And indeed, uh, Nicholas Kristof, in his piece uh, citing your book in, uh, in the New York Times, said that uh, he did some calculations and he figured out that if we had the same uh, auto fatality rate as in 1921, if we hadn't made these various improvements, that we would now have 715,000 715, Americans dying annually from cars, and instead we have reduced the uh, fatality rate by more than 95%. So the argument, uh, David Hemingway, uh, for cars was, oh, uh, cars don't kill people. People kill people. That, that sounds familiar. We can't change the car, but we ended up changing the car. So how do we apply that to guns? What kind of changes can be made? You've already said they would likely pass constitutional muster. What, uh, what are you advocating as far as yeah, changes to guns? There's all different things. And I think the public health approach says let's try to look at what could each sector do. Mm -hmm. uh, if we really wanted to prevent the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and in the motor vehicle area, it's not like there was one answer. Uh, I had worked for Ralph Nader, and we pushed for airbags. And airbags are great, but it only reduces the motor vehicle death rate by about 10 11%. Mm -hmm. We're going to have lots of problems in the motor vehicle area. We have to worry about pedestrians and bicyclists, and we have to worry uh, about rollovers and, and SUVs and side impact and all these different things, and so you have all different approaches. And so in the, in the gun area, if we're going to have lots of guns, which it looks like we are, we're going to have to worry about not homicide and gangs, and we have to worry about intimate partner violence mm -hmm. and homicide followed by suicide. We have to worry about suicide itself. We have to worry Private guns, public health. So many different things, and different, you know, different things will... The best approach to different things depends on, uh, it, there's not just one silver bullet. So, for example, manufacturers, we'd like them to do a better job about making 
child-proof guns, which they made 100 years ago to make it harder for kids to unintentionally kill themselves or hurt themselves or hurt each other. Uh, every day in the United States we know, and I've been looking at the data, it's, it's sort of horrible, where uh, a kid finds his uh, father's semi-automatic pistol and takes out the magazine and thinks it's unloaded and plays with the gun and shoots, and sometimes he kills his best friend. And a lot of times that's counted as a homicide because he, he, he pulled the trigger intentionally. And we can say, you know, it's the kid's fault, it's the parent's fault, it's somebody's fault, 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 or we can step back and solve the problem, which is make it so when you take out the magazine, the gun won't fire. Um, it's not, you know, uh, rocket science. We want to make it so uh, it's not so easy to steal guns right now. Uh, you know, we figured out a way how to prevent automobile theft. Automobile theft in the United States has fallen 90, 95% since when I was young. And it's not because kids are, you know, young people are so much better than when I was young. But when I was young, it was easy to steal a car. Now it's really, really, really hard. And so people stop stealing the cars. Uh, in the United States now, there's something we've been estimating uh, three to 500,000 guns are stolen each year. Wow. Uh, every Wait, gun. 300,000 three, three to 500,000. 500, That's our estimate. And and every gun in the United States begins as a legal gun, mm-hmm. bought by somebody who could theoretically pass, who could pass a, a background check. Somehow, a lot of these guns get into the hands of people who everybody, no matter what side you're on, thinks should not have a gun. And the question is, how does that happen, and how do we prevent that from happening? Uh, and the problem of gun theft is one of the big, big problems. Uh, straw purchasers is a big problem. Um, we yeah. want to figure out, manufacturers should figure out ways more to do to help police in solving crimes. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's this notion of uh, if you'd step back and said, we want to do research and we want to figure out a way to make guns so it helps in solving crimes, you want things like ballistic fingerprinting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and work on that a lot so to make it so when somebody fires a gun, you can trace it not only to the general make model, but to that specific firearm. It's the 21st century. Uh, we want distributors to do a lot more to prevent straw purchasing. Right. There's best, best methods of doing that, and there's not so good methods. And we want everyone to be using the best methods. Uh, there's so many things that can be done, including we're trying to work on work with um, uh, a lot of gun advocates, trying yeah. to figure out ways where we have uh, common ground that we can work together to try to reduce the number of people dying. You have uh, been successful. I'm speaking with uh, David Hemingway author of Private Guns, Public Health. David, uh, you, you mentioned that number, 300 to 500,000 stolen a year, which just uh, is, I, I was gobsmacked when I heard it. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, I remember after the uh, Sandy Hook massacre, uh, and I was out there arguing with a lot of, uh, you know, gun proponents, uh, people, you know, calling me a gun grabber and everything. And I'm not a gun grabber. and I, I support the Second Amendment. I don't have any real problem with that. I just think, you know, the, the things you mentioned, for example, sound like common sense uh, gun safety ideas to me. But the the number, one of the numbers that was bandied about, 32,000 gun deaths per year. And I heard from a lot of people saying, A, that's not true, or B, oh, that includes suicides, and somehow people will kill themselves anyway, so we shouldn't include suicide. I, I bring all of, the, all of this up yeah. to say that the numbers, I think that people aren't familiar with the numbers, with the data, and... Uh, that's not an accident, is it? In, in 1997, and you, you talk about this in, in your book, uh, which was published in 2003, relied on a lot of data from the 90s. Uh, but in, in, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, Congress 
defunded data collection uh, by the Centers for Disease Disease Control concerning uh, uh, gun safety. And it seems that a lot of the lack of information comes from a mandate from gun supporters to, hey, not collect this data. Uh, am I right about that? Can you talk that's about correct. that a little that's bit? Correct. I, mean, I always argue that um, uh, public health is underfunded rather compared to medicine. Within public health, injury and violence is underfunded. And within injury and violence, firearms are not only underfunded because the, the, the federal government is so afraid to fund any research in it, but data collection is, is way, way, way behind. In the motor vehicle area, whenever there's a motor vehicle death, we get 150 pieces of information mm-hmm. collected consistently and comparably. We've started to do that a little bit uh, with the National Violent Death Reporting System, but it's not in 50 states. So it's, it's, we really want to increase that. We want to you know, get good data on the number of guns in uh, households in each state, but the Centers for Disease Control is afraid to ask questions about that because it will get beaten up by Congress. Are, are they afraid, or are they actually yeah. barred from mostly doing so? Mostly it's afraid. I mean, mostly it's, there's no law that says they cannot do this, but basically it says if you do this, every time you do this, you'll be brought up before Congress, and um, you will be attacked and um, it's sort of like battered women syndrome. After a while, the, the batterer doesn't have to hit the woman to get her to do what she wants. And has that uh, changed over time? I know that your work at, uh, at Harvard School of Public Health actually works with the CDC. Has that changed? Not, the- not, not as much as one would think. Um, and foundations are afraid to fund this. It's, it's very sad that uh, for an area where we have such a, a, a public health problem that there's not better data and, and more and better research. Um, let me go back to the suicide question, because yeah, I yeah. think that's really important. I, w- I would say that one of the things we know for sure, beyond any reasonable doubt, is that a gun in the home increases the risk for suicide. The evidence is overwhelming. Uh, there's been uh, tw- uh, more than a dozen case control studies which says, okay, here's somebody who died in a suicide, here's somebody who didn't. What's the difference? And it's because there's a gun in the house. There's been a dozen ecological studies which show the same thing, which is that in areas where there's more guns, there's more death suicides because there's more mm. gun suicides. So if you try to explain across cities or across states in the United States, why do some states have a high suicide rate and some a low suicide rate? It turns out it's not because of mental health. It's not because of suicide ideation. It's not even because of suicide attempts. The difference is explained largely by the number of guns, the ease with which people have ready access to guns, because if there's a gun available, and so many suicides are pretty spontaneous, and the mm. urge passes after a while. Uh, if there's a gun there and you use it, you're dead, and there's no turning back. If the gun's not there, people tend to take 100 pills, uh, and we can save them. Uh, the case fatality rate, if you, if you try to poison yourself and really even really want to die, it's only about 3%. Mm. Medicine's very good. Medicine cannot save you if you have a bullet in your brain. The uh, I'm glad you, uh, boy, I'm glad you, you spoke to that particular myth. Let me talk about another one and, and get your thoughts on this. Uh, and because we're hearing, I've, I've heard this just over the past few days uh, since the Roanoke shooting. Uh, f- again, from gun proponents, uh, they talk about uh, women. Women need to defend themselves against a rapist, an abusive husband. They, you know, a woman can't wait seven days to buy a gun if she's, you know, being threatened by her husband or her boyfriend. Uh, they need to have it to protect herself on the streets against uh, 
uh, violent sexual assaults and so forth. Uh, are there statistics that back up that claim, or is that, again, one of those myths that's uh, easily done uh, away with? It's largely, largely a myth. We've just looked at um, uh, the National Crime Victimization Surveys, which tell us all about that that's the gold standard of what crime in the United States. And uh, they ask, you know, if there's someone tried to commit a crime against you, what did you do? And it turns out self-defense gun use is incredibly rare. It's less, well under 1% of the time where there's been a contact crime where the victim has seen the perpetrator, perpetrator seen the victim, um, and uh, less than 1% of the time that people use guns, and it's typically men rather than women. If you look at, um, in this National Crime Victimization Surveys, uh, in the five-year period, it's a big survey, over 60,000 to 100,000 people. There were over 320 sexual assaults on women. Mm. How many times did women were able to use a gun in this gun-wild country of ours? And the answer was zero. Zero wow. times. Wow. Uh, in the 10 years before that, uh, in the National Crime Victimization Surveys, there was something like a, what, what, 1,100 sec, uh, sexual assaults. The number of times women used a gun in self-defense was one. And, so women and, are not using guns in self-defense. What we do know is that when there's a gun in the house, um, who the woman should typically often be afraid of is not some stranger breaking in. It's your, you know, it's your ex-boyfriend or your husband or whatever. And if they, you know, giving them access, making have access to that gun is dangerous for you. It's not typically good for you. Well, uh, th- um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and that was another one of those. Man, I'm glad you spoke to that because I hear that all the time. And when I, uh, you know, and and I've heard it from women. And I say, hey, you are much more likely to get shot and or killed by a gun if you have one in the house uh, than if you don't. And, you know, it's, it's much more likely to kill you than to protect you against an intruder or anybody else. Uh, David Hemingway, I've got just a minute or two left here, but uh, in the preface to your book... Uh, This was an interesting uh, thought. Uh, You wrote that uh, one of the reasons you were uh, propelled to write this book was because of an article in 1995 that had little to do with crime or injury. And I just want to quote it. You quoted it there, and I want to have you you speak to why this uh, sort of moved you. From uh, Mamaroneck, New York, uh, the article in the International uh, Herald Tribune When the Canada geese were just passing through in that lovely V formation, people here actually liked them. This was obviously before the honk if you hate geese bumper stickers and and way before village officials decided that birds should be shot. It seems that the geese just didn't know when to leave. All of Harbor Island Park, the beach, the docks, the... Uh, the fields became saturated with their most unwelcome calling cards. They had just about exhausted the public's goodwill and stumped village uh, village officials who uh, obtained a federal permit to allow hunters a crack at the problem. Why did that move you to write a book on private guns and public health? I don't know. It just seemed like such an American response. When there's a problem, let's shoot it. Let's shoot the people. <laughs> let's, let's shoot the geese. Let them, and, and fortunately, you know, wiser heads prevailed, and what they decided instead is let's you know, put a little collie dogs out there and chase the geese away, and they did, and no, no, nobody got killed. There wasn't any wild shooting, and it solved the problem. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many different ways if, to, to solve the to solve problems other than uh, attempting guns. You have to realize that 
even in the United States, uh, only 20% of the people have guns, only about a third of households have guns, and the two-thirds that don't have guns turn out looks like they're much, much safer than the one-third that does. Uh, across the developed world, very few people have guns, uh, and if they have guns, they store them really safely, and they're at much lower risk of, of, of getting killed. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's amazing. What, uh, before I let you go, what has the uh, response been? I think it was, it's been almost, uh, almost a decade, I guess, since you published yeah. this book. Uh, ha- has anything changed over the, the past 10 years? Uh, Do you feel it's picking not, up steam? Not, not enough. There, there's been some good movements at various state levels. I think uh, California has done a lot of good things to help try to reduce the problem. In Massachusetts, we've been doing a lot of interesting things. We're the first state to requires we have mandated gun training and in that gun training now uh, there's a suicide prevention module so people are being when you when you are trained you're being taught listen you know there's lots there are some good things about guns but there are also some bad things and you have to worry about them you have to have an open you know have, be knowledgeable before you uh, get a gun uh, so that's really good one of the things in public health too is that there hasn't been nearly enough change but what typically happens is that um, against any reasonable um, policies in public health, all the successes, there are people fighting and fighting and fighting against it, uh, even mm-hmm. such things as the 19th century sanitation laws. Uh, and then suddenly you just push and push, and then suddenly something happens and things start to tip. And when things tip, sudden, you know, wonderful things can happen. You can see that, for example, uh, in tobacco in the United States, where mm-hmm. the tobacco lobby is supposedly the strongest lobby uh, in the world. Uh, and yet now, you know, suddenly you can go to meetings and not have to breathe other people's smoke all the time. No, you're you're right. When things do happen in this country, uh, particularly of late, it does seem to happen quickly. Uh, you write in your uh, in the preface to your book, public health is pro health. It is not anti stairs, anti swimming pools, anti cars, or anti guns. Unfortunately, many people who lobby for uncontrolled gun access dichotomize the world into pro gun and anti gun, us and them, good guys and bad guys, criminals and decent law abiding citizens. Dividing people into such categories is anathema to public health, whose mission is to unite diverse groups of people and to improve the health and the conditions that promote promote health for all peoples. Uh, I think we should listen to you more, David Heming- Hemingway, uh, and even to the people up in Mamaroneck, New York, who figured out how to solve their problems with puppies. So uh, <laughs> that that's uh, an important book, uh, David, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about this today. I hope to talk to you more in the future about this. I, I hope people will pay attention to your book, Private Guns and Public Health. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Welcome back to a busy news day on the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here in uh, just our few final minutes. Baltimore officials have now reached a $6.4 million wrongful death settlement with the family of Freddie Gray. 
That, of course, you may remember is the uh, he is the 25 year old man who died in April from a neck injury. He suffered in police custody. The agreement comes a week after renewed demonstrations sparked by a court hearing in which a judge concluded that the six Baltimore police officers indicted in Gray's death and arrest should be given separate trials. Uh, Gray was arrested the morning of April 12 and died days later from a catastrophic injury that occurred while he was being driven in a police van, given a rough ride, It, uh, according to the prosecutors. Uh, Gray was handcuffed and yet unbelted at the time. And so he was thrown about that, uh, about that van, and uh, that apparently is what killed him. And now the, uh, the police are being charged in, uh, in that homicide. And of course, we remember it well. That was on the well, actually that was the day we started doing our daily broadcast. We've been doing it, of course, for years uh, weekly. And then we started we started on the day of those uh, protests and uh, and and riots that were sparked by Freddie Gray's death uh, on April 27, the day of his funeral. And you'll recall Larry Hogan, the governor there in uh, Maryland, eventually called in the National Guard. They implemented uh, citywide curfew and so forth. Um, they're saying the uh, the the, uh, the mayor, uh, Stephanie Rawlings Blake, says that the proposed settlement agreement is not interpreted as a judgment on the guilt or innocence of the officers facing trial. That this settlement, she says, is being proposed solely because it is in the best interest of the city and avoids costly and protracted litigation that would only make it more difficult for our city to heal and potentially cost taxpayers many millions more in damage. So the uh, the cases against those, uh, those police uh, officials, the, the, the police officers will be moving forward, the criminal case. This essentially is an agreement that keeps the family from suing, uh, suing the city or, or the state and so forth. The, 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 when you look at what has a, a previous uh, settlements in Baltimore, uh, this settlement, for example, uh, eclipses the total $5.7 million that the city has paid out in 102 court judgments in police misconduct. Since 2011. So there's been 102 court judgments against police since 2011, totaling $5.7 million. This one is going to be $6.4 million. That exceeds the $5.9 million wrongful death claim that New York officials agreed to pay the family of Eric Garner. Garner died uh, after he was put into a chokehold by police in Staten, uh, on Staten Island. So the Gray settlement is also twice the 1994 $3.8 million payout to Los Angeles motorist Rodney King following his 1991 arrest out here. Man, uh, these police sure do have to pay a lot of money, a lot of millions in settlements all across the country for their behavior. <laughs> Of course, uh, Freddie Gray uh, and, and the protests there uh, helped continue to light, lighten up the, uh, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement over the past year. It's incredible to me that uh, anyone, anyone would dare criticize, frankly, criticize that movement, criticize those people who are standing up and pointing out these cases over and over and over again. 
where uh, black men and women are killed by police in police custody, eventually have to pay millions and millions of dollars in settlements. And then you have these so-called conservatives standing by these uh, these police officials. And I say so-called conservatives because their behavior is costing millions and millions of dollars. Never mind the lives for the moment, just the millions and millions of dollars that you would think people who call themselves conservative would give a damn about. In any event, $6.4 million, that agreement still needs to be approved by the Board of Estimates out there in Baltimore. But there's that today, and uh, I had hoped to get into it uh, today uh, some more on this Iran business. We won't have time uh, to go into details other than to say for now it looks like Democrats have the 41 votes they will need in the U.S. Senate to keep the Republicans from even being able to bring forward a, a, a vote to uh, disapprove of that uh, RAND deal that will keep uh, nuclear weapons from being developed by Iran for at least 10 years, if not longer. It's a good deal, no matter what the misinformation is out there about it. Maybe on tomorrow's broadcast we'll be able to talk about uh, a little bit more about that inf- misinformation and how the American people ain't buying it. They are, in this case, with the president, and I would argue that's a very good thing. My thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to our guest, David Hemingway, author of Private Guns, Public Health. It's a really important discussion we need to continue uh, to have. Uh, And I think that's it. If you missed any portion of today's program, please check out the full show, the full archives at bradblog.com. If you have any thoughts on anything you heard today or didn't, you can email me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can and should follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. I'm Brad Friedman. Happy birthday, Mom. I love you. Good luck, world. <laughs>